Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. This morning I'm going to preach from a really familiar story on the wise and foolish builders. And I imagine that uh, that illustration might be confusing to some of you. You might have expected to see a drawing of a house on a cliff or maybe one crumbling over the edge of a sandy uh, rock or a hill and, and falling apart. But what you're seeing there is a picture of a man holding an ancient scroll, the Word of God, and roots are coming out of that scroll and wrapping themselves around so that you can't tell what are the roots and what are his arms. And, and we'll revisit that illustration later, but I think that's a meaningful way to depict the heart of what this particular point in Jesus' teaching is all about. On May 30th, uh, in fact, let me just first read this passage for you, okay? Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell and great was the fall of it. On May 30th of last year, a giant 60 foot wide by 300 foot deep Sinkhole. That's not Photoshop. That's real. A perfectly circular hole to the center of the earth, it looked like, just opened up in the middle of Guatemala City. Now, geologists came and tried to study um, why that might have happened because it's like the middle of town. There used to be a store. I mean, there isn't a store there anymore. It's just an empty hole. And it goes way down, and they figured out that probably torrential rains from Tropical Storm Agatha caused some sewer pipe or, or storm drain to burst underground, and all that water leaked out and was mo- moving around underneath the city. And so that probably caused the sinkhole. But just rain bursting out underground alone wouldn't do this much damage. The problem is, see all that stuff you're seeing that it looks like dirt? That's actually a volcanic deposit, a very loose, gravelly substance called pumice fill, And it's what's left behind by volcanic eruptions. And it is spongy and it is soft and it's very much like sand. And they built the city on about 300 feet of this stuff. This is vivid, graphic proof that foundations matter. That even though every one of those buildings was built with cement and cinder block and stones and bricks, it doesn't matter how sturdy the building is if the foundation it sits on is shifty like sand. I have a feeling that for some people, this this photograph is going to be the story of their life. And I want to let that sobering thought kind of sink in here. I believe that for for a lot of people, actually, I hope not too many in this room, but perhaps even some here, that picture is the story of their spiritual life. That's what this story is about. 
It's a story that presses one of the most important questions we'll ever wrestle with. On what foundation is everything built for you? It's easy to talk about the house of your life. We can talk about our differentials and income, physical attractiveness, fitness, particular skills and achievements. So our houses may look very different one from another. And those are good for interesting stories. And as you develop friendships or certainly when you're trying to find a mate for life, you know, like the the birds on the Discovery Channel, you're puffing your chest and, and kicking up your feathers and you want to make the best show of the life that you have. But at the end... No matter what kind of life you had, great or shabby, everything rests on what foundation you're building on. There's no way for me as a pastor or as a personal friend to offer you words of comfort that bypass that truth. I can't tell you that for some there will be a loophole. For all of us, the foundation upon which we build our lives will determine everything one day. You know, I've always thought it would be interesting to write a book called There's Two Kinds of People in the World. If you've been at Harvest Wild, I've mentioned this before. I think that would be a fascinating book. I wouldn't want to write it. I just want to edit it. I would ask all these famous people, how would you complete that sentence? There's two kinds of people in the world. Because that statement immediately categorizes how you look at humanity. There's, there's only two kinds of people in the, in the world, ugly people and beautiful people. There's only two kinds of people in the world, smart people and dumb people, Xbox lovers and stupid people. You know, like it shows you what you ultimately value most because that's how you differentiate the two broad categories of people. I wonder how you'd complete that sentence. There are only two kinds of people in the world because in this story, that's exactly what Jesus does. He says that when I look at humanity, I only see two kinds of people. One kind is building their life steadily on a solid rock-like foundation. And another kind of person is working just as hard building a house. But what they don't know is everything they're building on is going to collapse and give way one day. And all of that lifelong effort will amount to nothing. I want to give you some, um, some points that you need to know about this story of these two builders. And essentially, this is, this is really only going to be um, two main things you need to know from this text. And one of the first things you need to know is both builders hear God's word. Do you notice in both cases it says, here's the difference between the wise and the foolish builder. They both hear the word of God. And the implication there is they not just hear it, They have a positive response to it. They like what they hear. They agree with it. In fact, their response to God's word would be something like this. I'm with that. I'm down with that. I like what that says. It makes sense to me. If they were to be pressed on it, they would identify themselves as belonging to God's team. So this is not about two people. One is just a flagrant atheist who throws darts at pictures of Jesus versus another person who's always in church. This is not that kind of contrast. It isn't a story about a person who is a non-believer and a person who is an ardent believer. It's about two people who truly believe in their hearts that they're believers. Two people who have heard the word of God, liked it, accepted it at some level, but one is a believer and the other is a believer. Isn't it amazing what two wiggles of your fingers does to a word? I like you and I like you. Totally different meanings. 
I believe that that's what we're going to find shockingly with some people. This is, not a, this is not a sermon for the mission field. It is a sermon for the church. It is a sermon meant for people who sit among God's people, truly believe they are part of that number, but have not examined on what basis they hold such confidence in that claim. This is meant to shake up, to rouse a sleeping church, not to awaken the dead. That doesn't mean you can't preach this in the mission field, but I think that Jesus meant for those who are religious people to hear these words. One of the reasons I know that is, look at this. Matthew 7, this is the end of Jesus' famous sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. And as he's wrapping up the sermon, his last three or four points are all about differentiating the two kinds of people who will hear and respond to this great moral sermon. And in Matthew 7, 13 to 14, he differentiates people who are on a really wide road. They want through a wide gate onto a broad road. Lots of people are on there, but that road, easy to find, so inviting and simple, leads to death. In contrast, there are other people who are also on a road, but it's a narrow gate and a narrow road, and this one leads to life. Everybody's journeying, everybody's walking on a road, but not everyone's aware what road they're actually on without examination. Later on, just a couple verses down, he makes a contrast between two, two ways to distinguish what's really inside of a person. You can make fantastic claims, but at the end, you will know a tree by the fruit that it bears. Let's say you've got a church full of apple trees and an orange tree comes in and he knows that he's never going to get a date unless he's an apple tree. These apple trees are just prejudiced against orange trees. So he tells everybody, hey, listen, I am one heck of an apple tree. And all the girl apple trees are like, oh, yeah? And they're hanging out, but all of a sudden, what happens one day? He's just suppressing it, but pop! Oh, dang! An orange comes out. And for all his claims, you know where a person truly is by the fruit that's hanging on their branches. The substance of who we are is not the claims we make, but the lives that end up being produced out of the real truth that lies under the skin. And so Jesus is now again making a contrast between two kinds of people. A little later he says, and listen, here's another scary one. This one should terrify us. Not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord. I mean, that's not a casual, unbelieving statement. Not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord, who does great things, spiritual works and miracles in my name, belong to me. Some of those people, I will look at them one day and say, hey, thanks for trying, but I didn't even know you. This is all meant to wake up people who actually thought that because of some event in their lives, they moved over from death to life, but since that point, stopped examining on what basis they feel so confident in their standing with God. And so at the end of all of that comes these last verses differentiating two different builders. And verse 24 begins, Therefore, because you can see that it's not such a simple matter to belong to God, that it's easy to believe you do and end up actually not, therefore let me give you one last story as I close out this sermon. There's two kinds of builders in the world. One is building on a rock-solid foundation and another on shifting sand. Let me tell you two other things about these builders. Builder one 
looks at what the Word of God says, and then he does it. And Builder 2 looks at what God's Word says, and he doesn't do it. Now here again, it'd be very easy to descend into just some moralistic teaching. By the way, huddle closer. I don't know why, but it feels like the air conditioning is on in here. It's freezing. Huddle closer together. It's easy to think that all this means is if you're really good at doing what God says and avoiding what God says don't do, then you're on God's team. Yay. But that's not really it either. There's more depth to what he's saying here than simply that. What he's saying, though, is what is echoed in other parts of the Bible, that there is a very close relationship between what you truly believe and what you do. In 1 John 2, 3 through 6, here's what one of Jesus' closest friends wrote about the faith. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in him. Sorry, ladies, it shouldn't be written just in the mass. This is for everybody. Okay, girls can be liars too. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. I don't think it could be clearer that if the claim to belong to Jesus and to walk in him is valid, it will not be too long before you begin to see a life produced that looks like the walk of Jesus. That there would be a visible and marked difference between you and those who claim not to walk with Jesus. Now, I'm not advocating wearing bonnets and getting rid of electricity. God bless the Amish. I'm not saying we should do that. What I am saying, though, is if there's no difference between the life you used to have and the life you have now, except that you've got to be here Sunday morning, Not a whole lot has happened, to be honest. In James 2, one of the classic passages linking our works or our lives with what we say we believe, he says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Here's what he's saying. That faith claimed, which does not produce any kind of life, is not immature faith. It is dead faith. It doesn't exist. There's nothing there. If all your life since saying that you became a Christian, other people have to hound you to have any kind of spiritual life, any kind of attraction to God, I can pretty much tell you that that life you think you have isn't there. Any more than if I claim to love my wife, but I would forget to come home and I forget to take care of her and I forget to protect her if my friend didn't remind me every single day, hey, you should go home. That woman you say you love, she's lonely. You should go home. Give her some money. Do something for her. If that had to happen all the time, doesn't it stand to reason that my claim to love my wife is an illusion that exists entirely in my head? Isn't it just common sense that any truth claimed has to show up in life or it's a bunch of garbage? 
And Jesus is trying to wake us up by simply saying this. Thank you. Thank you very much. This kingdom of his is not a kingdom of high fives and yes, lords. It is a kingdom of living out whatever reality we think we're in. Here's one last one. Titus 1.16. They claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny him. Very few people in church would say, you know, I deny Jesus because you feel like that's a cutting in line to go straight to hell. Like, we wouldn't just say, I deny Jesus. But in fact, for many people in the church, the way we are living our lives is in fact a loud and clear denial of Jesus, though not in word, in fact of reality. Our lives represent or can represent a denial of a Jesus we claim to follow. Now, don't get me wrong. This is not some angry rant where I'm saying, I've arrived at a place of maturity, catch up. Or, it's not anything that's silly or superficial. I'm not judging anyone else here. What I'm asking you to do is not rest so comfortably in a historical event that has produced no reality today. What I'm asking you to do is stop thinking that a snot-filled prayer in sixth grade that has never been built upon or exercised can produce any kind of real confidence spiritually. That where life took hold inside of us, life will keep issuing forth in a transforming life. That our faith and our deeds can never be separated, but Christianity must always be shown in the life that it ultimately produces. I think claims are easy things to make. In fact, I would say in America today, one of the... the, people groups most guilty of easy and cheap claims are fathers. Isn't that true, guys? I mean, how many times have I said, I'll play catch with you tomorrow. And tomorrow, someone asks to meet with me, or I get behind in my sermon prep, and I stay a little later at the office, and I come home, and it's already a little too dark, so I drag my son out there just to just to assuage my guilt, and we use the last 10 minutes of sunlight, and he's just so wanting to play with me. He's like, let's just stay out here, and I'm hitting him in the face because it's dark. And like, what kind of dad am I? It's so easy to say, son, you're important to me. That is so, it just rolls right off the tongue. Say it right now. If you're a dad, just say, son, daughter, you're just so important to me. You just, you mean, you mean the world to me. I would die for you. I just won't come home early from work for you. I'd die for you. That's about it. I mean, I, but all the stuff below that I can't do because daddy's got to work and Daddy's almost going to get a promotion, and Daddy's got to make some money, and Daddy's almost there. I'm just almost there. Don't you understand? I'm doing this for you, Junior. Claims are exceedingly easy to make. They just roll right off the tongue. But a claim that's never followed up on is a heartbreaking betrayal, isn't it? Because ultimately, the truth of that claim shows up in what I do or do not do. It's not saying that I'm a good person because I do it. It's saying that what I claimed is real because I did it. That's really what we're saying. Finally, let me give you one last distinction between these builders, okay? One of them builds on the rock of faith. The other one builds on the sand of religion. If you've been at Harvest for a while, you might be surprised at how much we poo-poo religion. 
I thought the church was a religious institution. Why do these guys hate religion so much? We hate religion because religion kills. Faith brings life. Religion kills. And let me distinguish the difference between those two things. Faith is placing trust in what God has done for us. Religion is placing confidence in what we do for God. That's ultimately the simplest way to view the difference. Faith says God has done amazing things for us. I don't have to save myself because I have a Savior. And religion says, I'm not so sure his little assurances work, so just to hedge my bets, I'm going to do more good than bad over the course of my life. And when I stand at the pearly gates, I'm not going to hide behind Jesus only. I'm going to also show him my resume. Check it out. I went to Bolivia. I touched dirty, poor people. And I gave him food for you. Huh? Huh? It's pretty good. Come on. I used a week of my personal vacation time to go there. That's what religion does. It ultimately bases its confidence on what we did or did not do. So when you ask a person of faith, right after they, they uh, looked at pornography, violated themselves, and you ask that person right at that moment in shame and self-loathing, hey, does God love you? A person of faith says, I don't see why not. Of course he loves me. A religious person goes, wait a minute. I'm not so sure. Now, the works produced by faith and the life produced by religion are radically different. They may not look different on the outside, just like those two houses might be equally impressive, but you'll see when the storm comes what foundation those seemingly equal works were built upon. There was a time when Jesus heard a confession by Peter, a testimony. He asked, you know, he asked his followers, what does everybody say that I am? And they gave all these answers. Then he looked right at them and said, hey, who do you guys say I am? And true to form, Peter was the first one to open his mouth. He said, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Peter's always quick to give the right answer. And Jesus replied, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. And listen to these words. They will be familiar to you. Now I say to you that you are Peter and upon this rock, what rock? Not Peter himself, not to become the first of many popes to come, but the testimony, the claim that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God, that confession is the rock upon which I will build my church, says Jesus. And all the powers of hell, for all the relentless beating and storming the gates, will never conquer the church built on that rock. Do you hear that? The only way for a church to endure is to be built on the solid rock of that confession. Because hell will storm the gates. And the storms will come. You know that's true. Some of you have been through hell and back already in this life. You've been through things you thought would kill you. Things you never thought you would see the light at the end of the tunnel. And life will test you. It will be a relentless attempt to knock you down and break you. You know that's the world we live in. Faith endures. Religion does not. Because faith rests on this confession You are the Messiah. I don't need to save myself. I have a Savior. I know whom I trusted. And faith says, I believe 
that everything will work out in the end because I have someone who has done it all for me. Religion just doesn't buy that that could possibly be true. Here's another way of saying it. Faith is believing God. Religion is believing in God. And how much value is there in believing that God exists? Well, James 2.19, the brother of Christ tells us flat out, Hey, great job, you believe God exists. Even the demons believe that, and they have the good sense to shudder in fear. It is no victory spiritually to say, Hey, hey I believe in God. I believe. Good luck, you're in good, he- you're in good company in hell. I mean, even the demons believe that God exists. That is not faith that saves. That's what we call a deist, somebody who believes there must be a supreme being. I hope I'm on good terms with him. But faith says that Jesus Christ, one person in history, in time and space, is the only path to salvation. He is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And on him I stake everything. I believe God. I don't just believe in him or believe things about him. Let me tell you an illustration I've used from this pulpit before because to me it's one of my favorite stories of all time because it so powerfully paints the picture of the difference between faith and religion. It's a story of a guy named Charles Blondin. How many of you guys know this story? Charles Blondin was a famous tightrope walker, a French guy who lived and worked in the mid-1800s. He was very gifted at what he did, and one day, one day, he did an amazing feat. He took a three-inch thick steel cable, strung it across the expanse of Niagara Falls. How many have been to Niagara? Isn't that a crazy-looking place? Imagine suspending a rope over that and walking across, looking down at that. And that's what he did. He walked across, and everyone erupted. They couldn't believe it. But after a while, you know, it gets boring. We've seen him cross a million times. So he kept upping the ante, doing a little more, a little more each time. But the crowning moment of his act came on August 17th, 1859, when he convinced his manager, Harry Colcord, to get on his back, piggyback style, and he put on a blindfold, and he carried his manager across that tightrope on his back. If I were the manager, I'd be like, give me the blindfold. I don't want to see this, Right? And everyone, just, that was it. I mean, because, you know, one of the most incredible forms of entertainment is when someone risks possibly dying, right? And so they were amazed by this. And after that, he kept doing that same thing again and again. Uh, I think his manager had a nervous breakdown, so he changed assistants a year later. But in September of 1860, the following year, he was doing this act before the Prince of Wales, who was on a state visit to North America, and said, while I'm here, I must see Blondin. That's a man with priorities. The Prince of Wales comes to North America and he's like, my only priority is I got to go see Blonde and do that thing at Niagara. So they made a makeshift royal box. He's seated there watching and he just can't believe what he saw. And as Blondin returns to the other side, safely ashore, he's just erupting a standing ovation. He says, bravo. And Blondin looks at him and said, your majesty, do you believe I could do it again? Of course, the prince says, yeah, yeah, I just saw you do it. I believe you could do it again. And then he says, and you know where this is going, Your Majesty, would you kindly step down from the royal box and get on my back? 
To which the prince wisely replied, not on your life. Now that to me is the epitome of the difference between religion and faith. Oh man, it's easy to shout all kinds of belief, all kinds of praise from the safety of the shore. When it risks nothing, when you don't actually put any chips on the table, but you're like, dude, I got the best hand ever. I fold. Yeah, whatever. Who's going to believe you've got the winning hand if you fold? But that's what so many in the church have done. They shout glory to God from the safety of a life that does not have its confidence on him, where it's not all in, where everything isn't on the table, but we've got so much held in reserve because, frankly, I don't trust this Jesus guy with it all. I give him Sunday mornings for an hour and a half. If that long-winded guy goes long, I'll give him two hours, and that's it. I'll give him maybe 2 to 4% of my income, but that's it. I'm not going to give him everything. And that's what the Prince of Wales did. He cheered louder than anyone until it was time for him to get on the guy's back. Faith gets on the back. By the way, that's an actual photo of that crazy act. I, I, for those of you who have fear of heights, I spared you the bottom half of that picture, but it's scary. Faith is exemplified by the man on Blondin's back. Anything less than that is not the faith of which the Bible speaks, saving faith. Here's a good way to look at it. There is a plague on this side of the shore, and there's cleanliness on this side of the shore. And the only way to go from certain death to certain life is to get on this dude's back that's the only ferry across. You can, you can claim all you want he can do, but unless you get on his back, you perish on the wrong side of that great divide. To me, faith is just like that. It's putting all your chips in in a poker game because you are convinced you have a winning hand. It's those inspiring stories of someone who had an invention and so believed in it that they mortgaged their house, they maxed out their credit cards, believing that one day this product would be in every household, and they hit one day. Faith is, and this is the only positive thing I'll ever say about Microsoft, but <clears throat> faith is Bill Gates dropping out of Harvard to start a company he believed would change the world. Who drops out of Harvard? We're trying to get in. Who walks out of that place? That's faith. Faith is a woman looking at a man on one knee saying, will you give me the rest of your life? And that crazy woman goes, sure. In saying yes to that one man, she says no to three billion others. Not that they're all asking, but do you realize what an act of complete faith that is? She doesn't go, well, hold on a minute. I'm entertaining other offers, but let me take your number and call you back. Faith is all in. It's personally involved. It gets on the back. That is the only kind of faith that the Bible ever dignifies as saving faith. Are you getting the difference between faith and religion, the two foundations upon which people have always tried to build a spiritual life? Here's my paraphrase of it. Faith is belief so deeply held that it produces a life that would be reckless and irresponsible if the object of that faith were proven false. Let me say it more simply. 
faith is this, that your life would be completely absurd and stupid if Jesus is a liar. That if Jesus is not who he claimed to be, you, like a fool, have lost everything on that horse. And you're broke, and there's no other hope. I'm going to ask you, if Jesus turned out to be a hoax, what would you have left to live for? And the honest answer from many in the church today, across the world, is we still have a lot of stuff we like left over. Even if Jesus were a hoax, the only thing I'd lose is my religious life. My career is intact. My house is a baller house. I've got a car way nicer than your car. My kids are headed for the Ivy Leagues. The truth is that even if Jesus is a hoax, I've got a lot to live for. Now listen, I'm not saying that you should be poverty-stricken and have underachieving kids to be spiritual. What I'm saying is, does your life honestly reflect an all-in faith? That you so fully believe what Jesus said describes reality, that you've done things differently. You've made changes in your decisions, in your career path, in the way you run your family, in the way you organize your finances, your calendar. It's all impacted by the simple fact that you really believe Jesus told the truth. See, I'm not that clever. The essence of my counseling ministry is just telling people, uh, well, I don't know, what do you think Jesus said? Yeah, you know the answer. Do you think he was telling the truth? Yeah. Then I think you know what to do. Let me just put my arm on your shoulder and give you the courage to do it because that's what faith is. It is so believing Jesus told the truth that at the decision points of my life, I will choose the path that more reflects that I believe Jesus than the path that says I'm going to hedge my bets and play it safe. Now, for people like me who gone into vocational ministry, it's a lot more obvious that at some point we had an event where that happened. But it's so much harder to live in that reality after I accepted my calling. Because everyone just expects me to be this great Christian when, in fact, I have massive crises of faith along the way. Real faith, though, is always revealed by a life that would be senseless unless Jesus told the truth. That's why one day Peter said to him, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? That is the, a, a great summary statement of discipleship. <clears throat> we put every chip on you. If it doesn't work out, what do we have? And answer, Jesus says, look, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will receive eternal life. But listen to this. Many who are first will be last and many who are last will find themselves first. Let me just bring that to a close by saying, faith that has a plan B cannot save you. Faith that has a plan B is not saving faith. The only faith that saves is where everything banks on Jesus telling the truth. Now, don't panic. I'm not going to give you another 30-minute point. I'm going to wrap it up quickly here. Relax. It's going to be over before you know it. Don't miss dessert, the last little nugget. And that is simply this. You can make all kinds of claims, but at some point, don't you wonder what you're standing on? 
And it's just like, <clears throat> it's just like um, when I got cut from the freshman tennis team in high school, and I was humiliated because all my friends made it, and I was the only dork who got cut. And I was like... <sighs> so that summer, my parents invested thousands of dollars for me to go to a private tennis camp. It was a tennis camp where some of the kids landed in their dad's helicopter, okay? It was like one of these camps. And I played tennis for like 12 hours a day. And I knew I was getting better. I mean, I was just whacking the ball. And I was like, oh, I think I'm getting really good. But there was always that little bit of doubt. I wonder how much better I've actually gotten. And so even though I knew I, was, I had an incredible game, going back to sophomore year tryouts, there was this lingering doubt in me, like, dude, I don't know if I'm going to make it. And here's the nature of a test. In the end, without a test, you're never really sure what you got. It can look great. When you're hitting a ball against the wall on video, I look awesome. If I'm playing against walls, I can beat every wall in America. What if I want to play against a real human being? And that was the uncertainty. And without playing against someone, without a rigorous pressure-filled tryout, I would never know the real substance of my game. And you know there are people who are great in practice, but they're terrible when the spotlights are on them. People sing in the shower, but you go, sing me something. They're like, ibbity, ibbity. You know, that kind of person. And for some of us, that's where we are, right? You think you have a pretty solid relationship with God, and I'm not going to cast doubt on that, but you'll only know one way. And that's when the storms come. And then you'll know, despite the obvious sturdiness and grandeur of the house you've built, you will know what solid footing that house is resting on only when the storms come. And the storms will come. I promise you that. Some of you have already been through that, haven't you? And I'm not saying that like it's a point in my sermon. I've walked with some of you through some of the most horrific turns of events in your life. You've heard things from doctors you never wanted to hear. Things have happened to people you love that you had no control over and it devastated you. It made you feel this small, completely like an ant on the surface of the moon, helpless. You have suffered in ways you thought wasn't possible to suffer in the United States of America. And if you've been through that, you know that what I'm saying is the truth. The storms have already come in your past. By the grace of God, perhaps you've walked through them, but you know that was not easy. And what that showed in the end was what you really built your life on, didn't it? It revealed a lot about you. That may be one of the answers to the why question. Why did that happen? Because it's important for us to know on what foundation this whole thing is getting built. Some of you, forget that, all of us, all of us are going to face storms in this life. And I'm not talking about a zit on your forehead the night of prom. That is nothing. I'm not talking about someone finding your fly open at the mall. I'm talking about real storms. The kind of stuff that makes you not want to eat for six months. The kind of stuff that makes you seriously think about killing yourself. Listen to the imagery. The rains came. The floods rose. I mean, you talk about a, a two-pronged attack. It's pouring down on you. It's rising up from under you. And on top of that, the winds are beating down on the door of that house. The Greek word is more accurately translated 
slammed against. It's a battering ram that re- it's relentless. It won't stop. It just keeps coming just when you think you're out of the woods. There it comes again, again and again and again and again. That's life. Maybe it's loneliness. Maybe it's addiction. Maybe it's something inside of you that won't go away, an affliction you wish you could be free from. Maybe it's a real event that you so wish you could turn back time, but you'll never get that moment back. Some things are permanent. And one thing that is for sure is that all of us will face storms like that in this life. All of us. So the question is, when those storms come, what will you see in the house that you've built? What will I see in the house that I've built? I read a very uh, provocative quote on the internet this week. It said, there's going to be a lot of pastors in hell. After I got mad, I was like, hey, that's pretty true. I think there's going to be some pastors in hell. Kind of surprised. And that's not to say you shouldn't have assurance of salvation But I'm saying this to you. The storms will reveal to you whether this was a game or this was everything. And I don't know any kind of saving faith that would treat the work of Jesus as a game. I'm not saying this to judge anyone. I'm saying this because in this room are people I deeply love and care about. And the storms are going to come and I'm going to walk with many of you through lots of future storms, unless I do something horrible, I hope that I'll finish my earthly career here with you. And I hope that when I look around 20 years from now, some of you, old and wrinkly with me, are going to still be together in this house. And we're going to walk through some garbage together, man. Some stuff that's going to kill us. What's going to come of your life when those storms hit? By the way, this is the scariest picture of a storm I could find. But I'm telling you, they're coming. Are you ready? Don't simply say the storms are an annoyance. Why is it the house built on faith stands and the house built on religion crumbles in the middle of the storm? Because the house built on faith says, God has already done for me exceedingly more than I deserve And so no matter what life throws at me, God is still in control and his goodness is never called into question. Because I rest on the rock of my confession that you are the Messiah, the son of the living God, storms may come, but I'm never confused who God is and whom I have trusted with everything. But the house built on religion fails in the storm. Because it rested on what we did and it gives us this idea that I've tried so hard. God owes me better than this. I should have a better life after all that I've done for him. Am I not owed some consideration for the sacrifice and the faithfulness and all the times I bit my tongue? Am I not owed something for that? And the house built on religion begins to grow resentful and bitter at God who has betrayed him and has treated them unfairly. That is why the house built on religion cannot stand in the storm because in the storm, a religious person will always question God's ability to control things and God's goodness towards us. Simply based on what I just said, what kind of house are you living in? 
How have you responded already to the storms in your life? I'm not saying that to make you feel good or guilty, but simply to say, pay attention to what's happening in you. Don't walk asleep through this world with grand assumptions that cannot hold the weight of your life. This is a living faith for now. It's a faith of today. This is not the faith of your sixth grade conversion experience. This is right now. Do you find yourself this morning on the back of the tightrope walker looking down at Niagara Falls? Is that where your life today finds you? Or are you one of the multitudes in the church who believe your safety comes from the fact that you sit in this room once a week and you don't beat your kids or your wife or husband, that you pay your taxes and you hold doors open for people at the mall? Is that the foundation of your faith? I'm not saying this to make you feel worried, but simply to say, I invite you not to be asleep at the wheel, but pay attention to these things. And I invite you this morning to take a moment seriously to settle this matter. Some of you are so afraid of going there because you think your life is over as you know it. He'll take away all the good stuff and leave you all this boring stuff like sermons. He will give you a life. Don't you get that? He will give you the best life you've ever known. You cannot walk asleep through this. Pay attention to it. I invite you this morning to rouse yourself from your assumptions and do some business with God. And tell me if you're in the royal box cheering him on or if you're on his back. What kind of faith are you walking with today? That's why I love Heath's illustration. Because in the end, the Bible must not just be something I hold in my hand. It must be something that's got a hold of me. It's everything to me. It is the world I live in. It is the truth I stake everything on. Jesus told the truth. You know that? And for those who trust him, the world becomes a radically different place. For the rest of us, your days in this room are numbered. You cannot go on ignoring the sermon and being here out of habit forever. I hope you will not make the choice to just walk away. I hope you will accept Jesus' invitation because he cares about you and he's inviting you into a whole new, real kind of life. I think it's time for me to stop talking. I think it's time for us to let God continue the conversation in private. Kids are probably finishing up their seeds classes. We've got a few minutes. Why don't we spend a little bit of time quietly doing some business with God? Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you'd like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.